Well, I'd like to welcome everybody here to Becker Safety in Greeley, Colorado, Weld County, where we're doing a Living the Crude Life live recording session. Done these in other industries, and they've been uh, somewhat successful to where the audience gets to engage with some of our guests. Tonight, we've had to do a little shuffling, and so we're going to introduce our guests here right away. We're talking about uh, regulations gone wild or the new normal in oil and gas. What I mean by that is in the state of Colorado right now, there's a Senate Bill 181 that was passed that a lot of people call regulations gone wild. And in North Dakota, where Dennis Pungitori is going to speak in a minute or two, uh, they just got done with 18 months going through the regulatory ringer where they were victorious. But the CEO, uh, William Prentice, on our program, The Crude Life, probably about a month ago when they got the victory, he said this is the new normal in oil and gas. And I heard that term a few years ago, so I thought it was interesting that somebody who went through that much regulatory ringer talked about this is the new normal. And he said that in North Dakota, it was worse than California in terms of what they went through. So we thought this would be a good discussion to talk about because the oil and gas industry right now is going through a lot of changes. And we've brought in Dennis Pungitori, the executive vice president for Meridian Energy Group. And he's also, get this, chief revenue officer, one of the coolest titles I've ever heard of in my life. And... You know, as, as great as Mr. William Prentice is, everyone's looking for revenue right now. So who better but to bring in the guy who's in charge of revenues? So, and that's a, that's a real story. Everybody right now is looking for revenues rather than how to manage and how to be more efficient. They know that. Wells have gotten down from 14 million down to 6 million in some cases. So the efficiency is happening. People are looking for revenue. So we're going to talk with Dennis Pungitori in a bit about how they're looking for revenues after having to basically change their business model. Uh, we had Weld County Commissioner Mike Freeman scheduled for tonight, as well as Kevin Ross, a county commissioner. They're still in session, so they're not able to come right now. So a little bit of reshuffling here at the Living the Crude Life live recording session here in Greeley, Colorado. So we brought in the man, the myth, the legend, Bill Jerky from Fuel, former Weld County Commissioner, is it? Is that correct? Yes, yes, indeed. Try to say that one more time. Yes, former Weld County Commissioner. There we go. I'm going to turn your level. Former just legislator up a as well. Former Form state representative. Interesting. I did not know that. See, I'm learning on the fly here. That's how we're doing things here at the Crude Life. That's actually kind of how we do it. In fact, when I went out to the Bakken, this is a true story. So I went out to the Bakken, and I was uh, a method journalist, and so I embedded myself, and I'll never forget what it's like to make a huge monetary decision on two hours of sleep with a seat belt wedged in your back, trying to sleep in the vehicles out there. It's not a fun time, but that's, that's what it is like living the crude life. You just, you've got to pull your bootstraps up and get things done. So uh, thank you for coming in at short notice. Uh, Bill Jerky, what is fuel, by the way? Let's give you a quick plug for your fuel organization for coming on and being a part of this. Sure, yeah. Fuel is a, a little 501c4 uh, IRS approved entity. We started about eight, nine years ago now. I got together with our friends at uh, Noble Energy, uh, soon to be called Chevron, small company perhaps you all have heard of. 
And so uh, we got together with Noble, and I'd just come off the Weld County Commission, and uh, we discovered that we had a lot of things in common, namely that all of the natural resources got the Rodney Dangerfield treatment. We got no respect from the people, and we couldn't figure out why. Why in the world would people want to treat agriculture, water development, uh, gravel pit mining, which the other commissioners or the present commissioners couldn't attend tonight because they're on a gravel mission today, and then, of course, oil and gas. Why in the world would our building blocks of civilization be so chastised? Well, it has to do with the NIMBY process. Oh, it's good to do that over there somewhere. Just don't do it in my backyard. And what you got to discover, you figure out pretty quickly, is that you do this process because that's where the natural resource is. You can't move the river. At least you can't move it very far. The gravel reserves are where they're at. And so on and so forth. Agriculture only on prime lands that you can irrigate. And the oil and gas, you don't go drilling for them where there isn't any oil and gas. You have to only do that where, indeed, there's oil and gas reserves. So we put these four natural resource entities together, and we formed FUEL. Now, FUEL is kind of a silly acronym. It stands for Fostering Unity, Energizing Leadership. But in a way, it's to kind of put these people together, uh, these industries together, and ask for some cohesion, some, some support from each other, so that when we go out and do the battles that we fight, and we fight lots of different kinds of battles in different ways, that hopefully we'll have a better chance of success. So we've got a number of different uh, entities that are partners today in fuel, uh, coming from oil and gas, coming from agriculture, water, and indeed mining. So that's kind of the background of uh, how fuel came to be. I've been the executive director now these last eight years or so. You mentioned the word NIMBY, so I'm going to grab that and then transition over to Dennis Pungitori because he's very familiar with the word NIMBY because of Theodore Roosevelt National Park. One of the controversial points of Meridian Energy Group and the Davis Refinery was the Theodore Roosevelt National Park. Trying to build a refinery next to a national park in the 21st century is, is groundbreaking. It's absolutely groundbreaking, but... Your CEO, William Prentice, has told me many times that it actually made you guys a better company because of that. It made you more efficient with the environmental side of things, et cetera. So let's talk a little bit about some of the changes that you guys have had to do, some of the business model tweaks and everything that you've done over the last 18 months, you know, whether it's the ESG certification, the core principles. I don't know if you guys are familiar with what an ESG or a core principle is, last fall, bank, uh, Wells Fargo and Goldman Sachs, all the big banks were getting pressure to have oil companies get certified environmental governance social. So something along those lines, an acronym, ESG, before that they could give financing to these oil and gas companies. And so that's another thing that Meridian is, has had to look at, and if my understanding is they've gone through that. So, uh, Mr. Pungitori, go ahead and talk a little bit about Meridian Energy Group, what you guys have had to overcome, and how the business model has changed a little bit. Sure, Jason. Thank you. Again, uh, Dennis Pungitori, Meridian Energy Group. Um, you know, as, as he said, you know, the NIMBY issue, um, you know, we're about five miles away from the Roosevelt National Park, and <clears throat> the fact um, Step back a second, they're really the average age of the refineries in this country is 40 years old. 
Uh, you look at refineries that have been around for a hundred or so years. So that's really the only thing that most of the public has to compare it to is these, these old behemoth refineries, very dirty, very, you know, have been around forever, a lot of modifications. So to be fair, in their mind, that's what they're thinking is going to be within sight. We're not actually within sight of the National Park, but that's what, that's what they imagine will look like. Um, again, I, they used to call me anecdote guy. I used to race cars, and I raced a 1966 car, and I could improve that. I improved it to the point where it was as good as it was ever gonna get, and I could probably walk into a Nissan dealer and buy a better car today that's cleaner, faster, more reliable. So, so that's the type of refinery that we're building, a very clean, very small footprint re refinery. If you know anything about air pollution and, and permitting, we're a synthetic miner source, which means you could put one of these virtually anywhere in the country, which, which is the model that we're shooting for. Very clean, very efficient, very low impact, both financially and environmentally. And we think that if, if the environmentalists would really take the time to understand what we're doing, they would, they would push the industry in that direction. And that's what we're hoping for. One of the things that was mentioned to me um, by, by your CEO was that synthetic miner source essentially puts you in the same category as a restaurant, that the modifications that you've done, let me re repeat that. This refinery has now been certified in the same category as a restaurant. Is that, I mean, that, that, that's incredible to think that the technology to grab crude oil and refine it down to that process. That's why I think Colorado could benefit from this type of uh, innovation, this type of technology, because the regulations in Colorado almost to me seem like a template. And Bill, I wanna ask your opinion on this because I, I, I'm very curious. There was, now you follow me a little bit on this first, because I, I gotta lay it out a little bit. I'm a non-smoker, okay? But in the 90s and the 2000s, pretty much every state went through a smoking ban. And I started noticing, I worked in the media. I've worked in the media for almost 30 years, over 30 years actually. And I noticed the smoking ban in other states, because we actually have three states that we cover, North Dakota, Minnesota, and South Dakota. And I started noticing the same act actions and behaviors in all three states to kind of get the smoking ban done and again i'm a non-smoker but at the same time cigarettes are a legal product a lot of people were still smoking and the part that bothered me was the social shaming was the new leprosy or the new lepers that smokers became and again this is this is not a political thing this is just kind of what i saw happen well when i started coming to colorado four or five years ago i would stay in fort collins and I would stay and I'd go down to the breakfast bar and I like talking to strangers and this and that. People would ask me what I'd do and I'd say oil and gas and this and that. Well, four or five years ago, people would start looking over their shoulder before they told me they worked in oil and gas. And then it slowly went to where they just kind of would ask me first and they would feel me out before they started talking and some people would get up and leave if they found out I worked in oil and gas as of last year and two years ago. So. I saw this increase happen. 
of this kind of the social shaming towards oil and gas, fossil fuels, if you even work in the industry. So now I see SB 181 happen. And I've seen what they did in New York, and I've seen what they did in California. And then I saw what they did in California. I thought, oh, my goodness, I see a new template. Mr. Bill Jerky, I don't have any idea if you're following me or not, but I just, the way that the world works, and, and Meridian Energy Group went up against a template. They had to answer over 10,000 copy and pasted emails from all over the country because the climate activists, much like other, other groups, they've got templates down and they know how to, how to use iPhones and they know how to use different technologies to make it seem like one person is a thousand. So small groups can really do amazing things, especially when they start doing a little bit of some judgment and things like that. But um, your, your interpretation of 181, and do you think that other states will look at it as possibly a template? Well, Jason, perhaps. Uh, 181, the way I understand it, is a significant departure from oil and gas conservation commissions. And I'm guessing that most of them throughout the United States would probably follow the old-fashioned template, which would probably be largely industry-sponsored, probably coming from a uh, the old days of trying to make sure that people are being fair with each other with respect to the subsurface estate, that uh, that the property, the proper mineral right owners being compensated appropriately, that the various formations are being harvested uh, properly. Uh, the old, uh, I guess, mandate for the Colorado Oil and Gas Commission is to is to minimize waste. And so they're to try to minimize the waste of the resource, of the natural resource that the earth has beneath us. So that was their number one priority through the years. And so fast forward now to 181, we've changed now to the kind of powers that county commissioners have, which is like health, safety, and welfare. So the commissioners now for the oil and gas Conservation Commission in Colorado now are empowered to, I guess, if you will, go ahead and try to cover health, safety, welfare kinds of questions. So right now, of course, they're starting with this new paid commission to uh, draft the new rules, the new regulations for this. So it just depends. Depends is one of the biggest words in the English language. Depends. Think about it. When you're really an old-timer, you start thinking about depends in a different way. Okay, you can all laugh now. It's funny. It really is. Okay. okay. <laughs> Having said that, and being just a little silly for a moment, it really does depend. It really does depend upon what, how far they decide to go, what, the kind, what kinds of pressures can be brought about. And I, for one, I guess I'm excited to see some of the new corporate sponsorship in Colorado that's come about this summer. And I think maybe having a little bigger guns will allow us to have a, a little bit bigger, better uh, assault, if you will, or at least voice, if you will, in this battle. Because believe me, it is a tremendous battle that we're going through. If they decide to, if they being the regu regulators, decide to go way beyond health, safety, and welfare, normal, science-proven, and I mean real science, not some kind of fake science. 
but real live science proven. Like when the EPA says, for example, that they never have had a, uh, a polluted watershed as a result of, of uh, fracking, I kind of take them at their word. You know, EPA strikes terror into my heart still, and I think it does most Americans who are in business. And they say that, I believe it. And so if you're not making up crazy numbers, like we've seen out of, oh, the old uh, Josh Fox movie, I believe, out of Pennsylvania from 10 or 15 years ago, where they simply made up a lot of stuff, if we're actually relying on good science, then it would suggest to me that, that we ought to be in pretty good shape. Because prior to what I'm hearing today about California and whatever other state, Colorado was believed to be the state with the strongest regulations in the nation, the strongest environmental uh, regulations in the nation. And so you know, I relied upon that to be pretty strong because we've gone through iteration after generation after iteration of new technology of better regulation through the years. I started off wanting you to know that I served in the legislature. Well, I did. Back when some of these people that are listening today were children, and I mean really young children, I carried a bill called Senate Bill 177. I was the House sponsor of it, in which we reformulated the the, uh, Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, gave them more teeth, gave them more inspection duties, and more ability to crack back against poor operators. They were better funded, and we basically doubled their inspection or police force. And that was a pretty good move, and it lasted for quite a while. The industry itself, through COGA, really pushed back as well, and they made sure that they really were putting pressure on their operators to adopt the best technologies possible. And we simply got better and better and better as an industry. Come along then later, then clear into 2010, with the Jake Well in North Weld County. The Jake Well was the first uh, horizontal, if you will, and proving that you could drill horizontally across uh, our shale formations here. Well, that became, you know, the big stinking deal for Well County and in this entire region. It was a really, really big deal for what it did for us. And so, uh, you know, it, it's changed our whole world in such a way that now I can report, and this didn't even come up, this isn't even a question of yours, but Well County has about 12 school districts. Last year, oil and gas produced $200 million, $200 million in revenue for those 12 school districts. And that's from property taxes. Property taxes went directly into those school districts. No other, no other industry could claim anything remotely like that. So I've gone around and around and around, Jason, in telling you that it depends upon this new Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission. Now, one wittitude that I've heard, how's that for a good word, wittitude that I've heard, is that there's actually now more permanent uh, oil and gas conservation commission members in Colorado at five, more of them that there is, than there is rig count in Colorado. And each of those five will make at least $150,000 a year. $150,000 a year to write up those rules and hear these applications. So we are in a very, very different world. Before this, there's an entire volunteer group, group of people that came in and gave it their time and their expertise. And now these people are being paid that kind of money to potentially drive a major industry out of this state. So we're, we're dealing with some crazy times here, folks. Is that really kind of, that's the direction I'm seeing things too, is that it, this is not even as much a wean off. It's a, 
it's like a crash course type. It's I don't understand this uh, catastrophic uh, mindset towards fossil fuels. I, I just don't get it. And and I'm trying to be very non-political, very, trying to be very non-political because I, I just look at something like syringes. OK, like take syringes. Most of them are plastic, you know, and they got the metal thing, but they come in plastic sealed. Okay, so what are we going to do? Are we going to wash them? Are we going to reuse them? How, how are we going to f- tackle syringes if we get rid of plastics and get rid of fossil fuels and these types of things? And these are just really basic questions. I understand living in the planet of platitudes, but at some point you got to live in the realm of reality. So we won't need anywhere near as many syringes when, when we all can just live together in harmony with no oil and gas vapors and, and the 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 global quit warming and we can all live to be 150 in our little mud huts kumbaya kumbaya coal freeze to say. death freeze to death in the cold. Uh, dennis Pungitori over at meridian energy group say you guys over the last 18 months have had uh this legal battle and you kept moving forward there was a little bit of a downturn it was actually the end of the downturn when your your extreme downturn happened or your battle and now this new shutdown and the climate activists and Saudi Arabia and Russia and OPEC, and it just seems everywhere you turn in the oil and gas industry, there's so much negativity and so much downturn and so much black eyes, this and that. Your company has continued to have forward momentum. And it was a snail pace, snail pace, snail pace. It might have even been two steps behind, three steps forward, if you will, but it was forward momentum. And right now, I understand you guys are looking at Texas. You're looking at New Mexico. I've even heard of an international refinery that your technology has drawn interest over in Africa. Talk to me a little bit about staying positive. Talk to me about the forward momentum and just even what you guys have had to do in order to keep moving ahead. Because a lot of people are looking for forward momentum right now because that is an important element. Yeah, thank you, Jason. Uh, yeah, it's um, <laughs> you, you look at what we need to accomplish in the short run, and it's it's basically to to secure the permits, which we we won one battle. We're waiting for the not, the next one to uh, to uh, play itself out, and we expect to to win that also. But when you have the the downturn, the Saudi and the Russian downturn in oil, we talked about it earlier. The negative pricing on oil. Um, we're we're three years away from nominally three years away from starting being online so that really the the effect it has on us is uncertainty in the investment community people looking at what what you know do I want to invest in that industry do I think that's a you know that's a, a fair play and um, we can I ask you what what are people are, are people uh, coming up with objections about the oil and gas industry? Are they asking for that certification, you know? It, it's more, you know, for a while it was a wait and see type of, of mm-hmm. situation. We weren't sure. I, no, I'm just saying make sure you're speaking to the mic. Oh, I'm sorry. No um, <laughs> it was a, it was more of a wait and see. It really wasn't. That's objection. the crude life, guys. We just it's we, you know it's like changing the oil going <laughs> 60 miles down the interstate. Sometimes you just got to do it. Anyways, go ahead. Sorry. No, not at all. So um, yeah, it was really the uncertainty that that kind of kept people on the sideline. But yeah. 
there's a there's a class of investors out there that really they invest in oil and gas and when they pull their money out of one company they look for another place to put it and really we are one of the few games in town where you can really invest in a disruptive technology a disruptive company that has the potential for extremely high returns and and you know I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the other projects it's it's davis the north dakota refinery isn't the only project it's we're not a one-trick pony we've got project a uh, uh, project ongoing or in the early stages in west texas we've got one in oklahoma and those will there will be multiples of those projects um i don't know if you want if you want me to expand on some of the other things that we've talked about well you know one thing i, I would like you just to let the audience know about is that this is the first greenfield refinery to be built in the United States in over 50 years. And that's a very important milestone because the last 40 to 50 years, I'm rounding up, I think it's 47 or something like that, but the last 40 to 50 years, it's only been patchwork expansion remodel jobs. So literally by default, they will be the cleanest refinery in the, in the, on the planet as soon as they turn their lights on. So they're actually gonna be setting the bar for probably the planet going forward. This is, this is why this company is really remarkable because they have such a ground floor head start on this technology with these, I don't know if you wanna call them micro refineries, I don't wanna be insulting. It's it's they're targeted. Tar okay, targeted, yeah, targeted refineries. On, yeah, right. Because they only they, they produce a certain amount of oil to keep under that minor source, which is really important because that way you can get a refinery. And the issues with the pipelines and some other issues is very important to the Bakken right now because what they're talking about in the Bakken right now is adding more dollars onto the price because of the uncertainty with the pipeline. So the Bakken discount right, right now might actually go up a little bit by six, eight bucks or something like that I was seeing in the, in, the, in the news today. So that refinery would help with that, alleviate some of these things. So anyway, I didn't mean to continue on. Well, I just, as, as we, when we spoke on the phone, I'm, I spent most of my career in power generation, developing power plants. Uh, it, it bear with me, but back in the day, 20, 30 years ago, a Duke Energy and Excel, they were, uh, you know, at that time, um, they would never, their job was to build, own, operate, and maintain power plants. That's what they did. And, and the thought of them buying electricity from another source was, it was silly. You didn't, you never considered it. Well, along comes the whole independent power producer movement where these people were, could build smaller, cheaper, more nimble power plants placed in areas that had intersections of gas lines and electric lines. And it was a, it was a sea change in the industry. Today, I don't think a Duke or a Southern or any of these, these power companies would even consider building their own power plant. It, it would be unheard of to do that. They would simply buy the resource. If you, if you think about Meridian's business model, we very much mirror that, that um, business plan. Uh, and Exxon is not going to build a, 600 bill, or a $6 billion refinery somewhere. That's not 
what they do. They haven't done it, nobody's done it for 47 years. What we can do is we can find areas of the country that intersect stranded or uh, price advantaged crude oil and basically put the refinery where the crude is versus shipping it to the Gulf Coast refining or to Philadelphia or wherever else these, these ancient refiners are. So we can, we can produce the refined product near the crude and near the need for the refined products. And, and because of the size, we can do that virtually anywhere. So, so it takes me back to the old power days, looking at the intersection of crude and, and refined products. And that's really the business model that will take the company well beyond the Davis plant. And that's one of the reasons I'm very happy that you agreed to be a part of the panel tonight and in Colorado specifically because of the increased regulations in Colorado, not only the increased regulations, but the speed of the increased regulations. And Bill Jerky, I, I wanted to ask you um, about what your thoughts are on some of these outside the box ideas to try to create some, I guess, some new I will call it non-traditional revenue for if it's the first one built in 40 years, 50 years. And the reason I, I bring it up to you is because there's a lot of movement to integrate agriculture and energy together, whether it's through water recycling or whether it's through some sort of uh, pumps on, I don't know, powered by methane. I have no idea. I, now I'm making stuff up with methane cows. But you understand what I mean. The integration between ag and energy has been... Um, increasing. I talked to uh, Barbara Kirkmeyer, uh, Weld County Commissioner, about a month ago, and she said Weld County didn't always have a, such a friendly relationship with ag and energy a number of years ago. So it's been, a, it's been a work in progress. So talk to me a little bit about some of the innovation, some of the outside-the-box thinking, where you've obviously done with fuel even. It's, it's been an evolution, Jason, through the years, 30 years ago as a young rep, uh, state representative, uh, I was anti-oil and gas, basically, and uh, I opposed the industry and would introduce tough bills to try to go ahead and rein them in, to try to go ahead and get them to play fair, play right, uh, prompt payment bills, for example, uh, just different bills like that to try to get the industry to do right by the surface owner. And, of course, a couple of things happened during that era. Uh, COGA really started flexing its muscles. As I mentioned earlier, Senate Bill 177 came along providing greater scrutiny as well. And so the industry just got better and better and better. And then with the, uh, the Jake well again, uh, the production just shot up dramatically. Once we started doing horizontals, it made a whole lot more sense for the royalty owners of, uh, of Well County. The royalty owners of Well County primarily are farmers and ranchers. They're the ones that own the vast majority of it. And nothing helps a lousy corn price or a lousy milk price or lousy commodity prices of any kind like being able to collect some decent royalties along the way to subsidize your agriculture. And that's what's been happening here in greater Weld County for a long time. Those of you who don't know it, Weld County is the number one agricultural producer in the state by far, hands down, no question about it. So when we produce almost 90% of the state's oil here, right here in the same county, tons of synergy between agriculture and oil and gas. I used to hypothesize that that there might be a thousand sons and daughters of farmers and ranchers working in oil and gas today in this county. Any out there in the crowd today? 
Yep, I can see several of them, several hands popping up out there. People who who have their roots in agriculture but now work in oil and gas. And that has blended in such a way so as to create a much, much better relationship for the industry, oil and gas industry, to work with their sons and daughters who are now in, in oil and gas. So it's been much, much better. Uh, since this is crude and we're a little bit wild and crazy here, I just, I just wanted to see whether or not it'd be okay if, if we brought a new person up here instead of me. Could that be possible? Absolutely. You know the audience is always open to change. Let's play musical chairs. So, um, Well, they maybe have heard enough from me. I don't know. Who do we got coming up here now? This Tanya Von Beber. Tanya Von Beber? Awesome. It's a van, Tanya, not a thank von, you for sorry. coming in. Tanya. Folks, like I said, here at the Crude Life, this is like changing the oil, going 65 miles an hour down the interstate. And, boy, this is interesting. This is a first here at Becker Safety here, folks. We're playing musical chairs here at in. Becker. Uh, yeah, social distancing is kind of a, a loose loose thing now. Um, the, well, thing they, that, the thing that you asked about, though, really quick, Jason, is I am so excited to hear from Dennis, the former commissioner. I've wanted to push for like 15, 20 years now a refinery in Weld County. So, yeah, yeah. I hope that that's what part of your trip Dennis, is you for. just got the trip made right now. My, my business cards say Houston. Hey. Colorado. <laughs> you live in Colorado. So, yeah, please, we would love to see one in uh, Greater Weld, right where the oil comes from, and, and then marketed right into Denver. Um, thank you. Yeah, we, sh we should talk. It, it's funny. Um, we've gotten, or I've gotten unsolicited requests from companies that are, um, well, this is before the COVID thing, but airlines that are having difficulty getting jet by pipeline and uh, are interested in a model where we have a smaller refinery near major airport hubs. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's starting to catch on. And you've heard of DIA. Yeah. <laughs> Tanya, how are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me in tonight. Well, thank you. And introduce yourself, please, because we have not met yet. How are you? Jason Spies is my name. Nice to meet Jason. Um, so uh, my name is Tanya Van Beber, and I'm the president of the Weld County Council, and I am also a candidate for House District 48 here in northern Colorado, here in Weld County. What is your interpretation of SB 181? Let's just get right into the frying pan a little bit, huh? Uh, we the people have no more voice. Let's okay. just go there. <laughs> so I, I would interpret it that way. I would, I would say that uh, we had a voice in 112. We said what we wanted, and it was duly ignored, and 181 went down. 112 was the measure that was on the ballot, mm -hmm. for which the state voted on, and they voted... Uh, in favor of the oil and gas industry, I guess would probably be the that way, is correct. The loose way to say it. Yes. Governor Jared Polis became governor. They had a bill ready to go. Mm -hmm. Yep. Put it in. It got rammed through really quick, and then SB SB 181 became a reality. Correct. Correct. And and you know that's the unfortunate trend that we're seeing. This is why I say it's a template. This is why I say it's a template, very similar to the smoking ban back in the mm -hmm. 90s and 2000s. Again, I'm not trying to get into a smoking political nope. debate here. This is totally just about the template. That's all it is. And it's a very similar one. Um, talk to me a little bit about why you're running in relation to industry. How can you 
communicate to oil and gas? What do you want them to know? What do you want industry to hear from you? Well, it's interesting that, that I got a call tonight uh, to come on in. Um, I actually had the good fortune to sit down with uh, Colorado Oil and uh, the Colorado, uh, sorry, uh, COGA today, Colorado's um, Association for Gas and Oil. Oh, this is like oil. fresh news here. Today, yes. This is white hot. <laughs> this is so hot. It's not red or yellow or orange. It's white. All yeah, right, so, so it was nice to sit down with uh, the Colorado Oil, oil uh, and Gas Association today. And then uh, Monday night, uh, it's also fresh because Jason Maxey, which is the department head for Weld County Oil and Gas, presented to the county council. And talk about serendipitous, the opportunity to, to see both of those places both local and then of course at the state level um, and I would I would piggyback on what Bill had said about the farms and the harmony and the simpatico about the importance of that coming into the area I I grew up on a farm and I'm a third generation Well County resident and at the end of the day um, I think most farmers looked at this industry and said Mm, I'm not sure. You know, farmers are conservationists by nature. Don't harm my water. Don't harm my soil. And once they got in and realized the uh, idea that these might be the first profits we've made in a bit, we all know farming has taken that that hard, hard road since the 1980s. It's an up and down market, much like oil and gas. And at the end of the day, uh, for the first time ever, landowners were uh, exploring their property rights, exploring their mineral rights, and receiving royalty checks. And for me, as somebody who watched this and lived this day in and day out, I watched legacies occur. Farmers often have a calling. Those are individuals who chose this life, and it is a calling for them. And the beautiful part about the harmony of it all was that it became family legacy. It allowed uh, children of farmers for the first time ever to have the hope that that land does get to stay in their family. That land does get to stay in their community um, and, and not be sold off or not have to be sold uh, to pay you know, the taxes and they, and they go their way. So I think that's something that's very important. Um, when it comes to why I'm running and on behalf of this industry, if you will, or what, is, what importance is this race to this industry, I would say there's, it's about like a 26-sided dice. Um, as I watched as a constituent, 112 passed with the will of the voters, and then our, local, our state government come back with 181 and say, no, you don't get to, ha you thought you had a voice, but you don't. That was disturbing, deeply disturbing. Uh, I've got a saying that I've, I've used for a long, long time, and if, if, if uh, somebody else owns your time, talent, and treasure, you're nothing but another man's slave. And at the end of the day, uh, we lost our voice and our, our treasure and, and our time was taken from us. And so that does uh, create a situation where the, the impetus no longer is so that it's we the people uh, that was taken from us. So that's, that's part of what uh, concerns me about this industry in particular. The other thing that I got to see as a, a constituent who grew up in agriculture but had oil and gas punched, we were one of the first farms in the county with a vertical well punched just 100 feet from the back, you know, it was probably two, 300 feet from the back of our corrals. Um, the fascinating thing is I watched uh, folks come out from different uh, other industries, other places, and state how harmful this was to the environment. Um, we didn't experience any of that. And what we did experience and what I have watched and what I have witnessed firsthand is that this is the most responsive, one of the most responsive industries to anything that might go wrong. All industries have issues that happen. All industries have accidents. All industries have things that they can improve upon, and yet they are incredibly responsive. And I would wager, we lead the way, well, I, I wouldn't wager this, I know this, we're the world's leader. We reduced mortality rate around the world. 
the bottom line is a thinking individual, an, an individual who's done their homework, understands that 97% of everything they can see, touch, feel, hear, and experience is a petroleum byproduct. Mm -hmm. The heart valves for a, heart, a senior heart patient, the incubator for an infant, these are all things. If, if we were to take all of those things, the roof on our home, the wheels on our Dinner. car. Right. They are uh, every bit part and parcel uh, of how we experience life all day, every day, from the minute we get up to the minute we, we close our eyes at night. And so I look at that and I think of all the industries in the world, you know, we can't make more land and we can't make more water. But I got to tell you, when I know that this industry is part and parcel responsible for uh, the, lowering the mortality rate of countries around the world, for improving the lives of nations and children and families and, and people around the world, that's something to pay attention to. And so th that's just a little bit of why I would, uh, would, would say that's part of the pieces I take into consideration when thinking about why I would run for office. And even if I weren't, besides the point, that's all besides the point, I'm a thinking constituent. I'm an individual who's involved in my community. It's up to me to know these things. And once you know them, you can't unknow them. And for me, this is all about education and what, what can I educate myself with and how can I help myself and really others understand um, that this is the most highly regulated, probably one of the most responsive industries uh, in our state. And uh, I sure enjoy not freezing to death in the winter. I sure enjoy uh, the benefits that it provides us um, in all of the different kinds of medical industries um, and so on and so forth that allow people to prosper. I want to mention something about the uh, safety part, being responsive. Mm -hmm. I would actually disagree with you, and I would, I would say that the industry has been proactive through the years. Yes. And I'll tell you why I believe that. And the oil and gas industry is really a different industry like, like you've never seen before. I always joke the perfect oil company is somebody that owns the mineral rights and they've got that down in the file cabinet down in the laundry room because that way they get a check every month and they don't have to do anything they got no liability so they outsource as much as they can well you don't make as much money so if we just did this part of the supply chain well we'd make this amount and then we'd make this amount because like i said earlier wells used to go at 14 million now they got them down to six to eight or something like that that is a lot of money you know to to, to divvy out so be that as it may, when you've got local community people essentially working for oil companies, that is a whole different industry like you've never, this is not like Amazon, this is not like Walmart, this is like nothing else because these people are independent contractors, these people are your PTA members, these people are in charge of your county commissions and etc. They go to church together. They need to be in charge of each other's safety. So that's why the energy industry, in my opinion, has been so proactive over the years on the safety side of things. That's why this whole crash course to get off fossil fuels is so perplexing to me because you said 97%, I say 96%. And either way, we'll split the difference. My thing is, is that I say, when you wake up and brush your teeth, there's actually petroleum products in the toothpaste, in the, toothpaste. the thing, the tube, the toothbrush, the bristles, how it got there, that's just your toothbrush. That's just your toothpaste. That's just your experience brushing your teeth in the morning. 96, 97% of what we do is fossil fuel based. So why are we gonna get off that in 10 years? That's not even possible. 
Again, syringes. Second, how about pipes? We just put in a bunch of PVC pipes. We just spent the last 20 years doing that. Now we're going to switch that. There, this is kind of crazy, and I blame the media for allowing the craziness to get out of hand a little bit. So appreciate you guys coming on here to try to talk a little bit uh, as far as some sensibility because the industry has always corrected itself. If you go back 150 years, we were using hay and wood to keep warm. And that was a lot of hydrocarbons, okay? And then we went into, I think we had went, and went into whales for a while, and we almost got rid of whales. And then we went into kerosene, which saved the whales. So petroleum products actually kind of saved the whales. And then we went to coal, and then we went to crude oil. And now we're at like natural gas. So we're down to just one or a few hydrocarbons. So over the past 150 years, the energy industry has naturally evolved to be a greener industry long before the Sierra Club came around. And that's not a political shot. That's fact. So this crash course to get off is, is what I don't understand because the industry's naturally been doing it. They've been doing it in, on the marketplace's time, if you will. So um, that was a lot of verbal diarrhea there, folks. I'm really sorry about that. But I do get a little bit passionate. The safety, the proactive. The other side is the capitalism and the opportunity within oil and gas. And that's the part that I'm worried about right now, which is anybody here in the audience going out and working on a rig, we're look, looking every day at those vibrating tubes can figure out how to make that vibrating tube go twice as fast and twice as cheap. And the oil company, they don't want that company. They say, good for you, go start a company. And that guy does. And all of a sudden that guy, he goes out and starts a company and now he's got three or four staff members and he's making a good living. He's empowering his family. He's empowering his generation. And that's the thing the energy industry has done that has really attracted me personally is their commitment to the purity of capitalism and opportunity. When I start seeing subsidies come in and I start seeing the government start to pick and choose and start to manage the marketplace in the oil and gas industry, oh boy, I'm really worried about it. So you're running for office. I want you to know that. You used to be a legislator. I'd love to know your opinion on is the and, and i'll keep you out of it because you, unless you want to chime in but we've been saying for a little while now it just seems like ag or energy is going like ag 2.0 the way that ag turned with okay if you don't grow soy or corn or wheat good luck buddy roll the dice it's almost becoming like that and the railroad commission down in texas they keep revisiting you know talking about controlling the marketplace a little bit which is normal it's, it's, it happens from time to time, but your thought on what's going on in the industry, SB 181 with the, I guess, the opportunity, limiting opportunity out there in the marketplace. So I don't know. Well, There's, there, there was a lot there to unpack. So. No, it is. It's, it's a lot to unpack. And, and I think we really have to be readily able to admit s some facts. And I'll wrap it back around to what you just talked about. And that's that you're right. They are responsive, but you take it a step farther. They're proactive. I would totally agree and wrap that back around and say, not only are they, they proactive, um, I would say the market demands, right? Free market enterprises, as free as they can be, um, has already started the demand for renewable energies, for those alternative kinds of energies. And, and the build side of it is becoming cheaper. 
the innovation and the creativity for that is becoming uh, easier for a business person to get into and all of those kinds of alternative energies. And the buy side is, is somewhat dropping. Now, you're right. It's due to a lot of different kinds of subsidies you know, and, and a lot of demands. I mean, I'm looking at bills right now that may be coming down the pike and forcing builders to put an electrical charging station in a garage or forcing um, the idea that we can't have uh, um, natural gas in a house or they have to be limited to, to commercial buildings. Mm -hmm. We start fudging around, if you will, in those kinds of decisions, and there's a lot of unintended consequences. And I, and I always think about um, Keynesian economics and how we don't take into account the long game and all the stakeholders and all the things that happen. But when we're talking about being proactive, what I'd really like to, to say is I think it's oil and gas, and I don't think it's proven. Oil and gas, more often than not, today, maybe the father, if you will, of, of creating an a link or a, a harmony between all those energies. We now have um, solar batteries going on at the, at the well sites. We now have um, electric rigs. We now have electri electric um, options when it comes to that process, uh, solar, other solar kinds of things. And so they're pulling in these alternative energies. And that really, I think, is the next step um, for that industry. They, they are starting to do some of those kinds of things. But it's not going to work until we, we do stay out of some of those things and, and stop playing uh, legislatively in, in, with our fingers in that. The irony of all of this is with our best effort with House Bill 1313 from last year, we wanted you know 50% uh, carbon reduction, uh, carbon emissions reduced by 2030, 100% reduction by 2050, and yet a report just came out yesterday. And who has, and who led this? Boulder, Colorado. And you're right, it, it's a hypocrisy, if you will. And yesterday the report came out and they have the highest emissions by zip code in the entire state. One of the first places to ban fracking, one of the first places to get rid of oil and gas, and yet they have the highest emissions in the state. That's something to pay attention to. It's again about and, education. And I am paying attention to it because I live in Fargo, okay? North Dakota is east-west. Okay, Fargo, we're five, seven hours from the closest oil and gas rig. We are very blue, Austin, Boulder, blue, okay? Every story you ever read about Watford City and Williston adding, you know, a person, Fargo added eight. We have the university 70 miles up. We have the other university. This is actually true. 20 years ago, if you went 90 miles west of Fargo, drew a straight line from Canada down to South Dakota, that's 60% of the population of the state, okay? The rest is Bismarck, Minot, Dickinson, Watford City, Williston, okay? So Fargo, which has no oil and gas experience at all, zero, controls the state. And now, because the population in Fargo has grown so much, you only got to drive 20 miles from Fargo, draw that line, because we have Grand Forks, Fargo, and Wapaton. Those are the three cities that are just kind of co you know, just co-mingling. On the flip side of that, the oil and gas, get this, the oil and gas extraction and production tax is like 11.5%, I believe, in North Dakota. It's the highest in the nation, one of the highest in the nation. That equates to 55% of the state's budget in North Dakota. Okay. Oil and gas in Colorado is taxed at 87.5%. Okay. So it's, <laughs> it, it's, 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 remarkable the amount of taxes that are going in and I, i'm looking at the clock and i, and I know we're kind of going a little bit long here a little bit but 
Uh, Bill, I, I wanted to talk to you about your former days as a legislature. You said you were against oil and gas, or you, you know, had a negative opinion of it when, when you first got in. And um, I want to talk to you about the revenues that oil and gas create for the schools, for the parks, for you know the, the arts. The, I, Tulsa, for example, is a very artsy community a lot because of the oil and gas district and things like that. Um, talk to me a little bit about that and what you believe this resistance against oil and gas is going to have. I don't know if you want to even call it through the supply chain because, yeah, the small businesses are going to get impacted, but, boy, these state governments are going to get hit too. I'm really afraid to open my property tax next year. It, it's, it's dramatic. It's potentially kind of exponential money. A few of us that happened to go back to uh, early 80s uh, will remember the last time that oil and gas pulled out of Colorado, and it was with the oil shale failure on the western slope. Uh, the the price wasn't going to meet the uh, uh, the technology, and so the companies decided to pull out of the Western Slope. Well, the side effect on that was that most of the oil and gas exploration companies operators had taken up office space in downtown Denver, what we call 17th Street. 17th Street became a ghost town back then, and Denver was in free fall. Uh, the economy was in free fall. Agriculture was having a very difficult time, horrible prices. So, yeah, Colorado in particular really, really faced tough times. And a lot of that had to do with pulling out the specter, the, uh, the potential opportunity of oil and gas blowing up big. It hadn't yet. It has now. It has been this way for decades. We've had excellent exploration here on the Front Range, uh, mostly out of Well County here. So it's proven. There's literally two, maybe $300 billion of, of oil and gas under Well County that has not been pulled out of the earth yet. Two to $300 billion with a B. So I mentioned earlier that uh, Well County schools alone pulled down $200 million in one year just on property taxes. Property taxes are the original severance tax in Colorado. It's considered a property. Uh, they're taxed for it. Tanya mentioned 87.5%. To be clear, that's the amount that is assessed on the total sale. So if you sold $100,000 worth of oil on a given well in a given year, 87.5,000 of it would be subject to taxation. They wouldn't pay that much tax. Then the mill levy would be applied to that. In comparison, if you're a homeowner in Colorado, you'll pay at the 7% rate instead 87.5%. So oil and gas pays... Twelve and a half times more or less what a residential property owner pays. If you're a commercial property owner like, let's say, Becker Supply, just, you know, for the heck of it, why not Becker Supply? You'd pay 29% on a structure like this, on this real estate, as well as the improvements inside. So they would pay over four times as much as the residential property owner, and they would, and they would pay only one-third as much uh, the commercial wood as oil and gas still. So oil and gas pays an enormous amount. Uh, it's believed that if you bled $200 million away from the schools of Weld County in a given year because of the failure of oil and gas to keep producing at that level, then the state would have to backfill that $200 million, thereby creating a big deficit for the rest of K-12 through education 
and all of K-12 education in Colorado would suffer just because of that one thing of oil and gas being largely gone outside of Well County. So it goes on and on and on and on. It's incredibly destructive to talk about pulling this major tax resource. And that isn't even the half of it. Really, the royalty owners are the ones I care about more because I'm one of them. Yeah, without, you know, without self-interest, there'd be no interest at all. So I care more about, about make me making sure I get my royalties, right? We'll talk about a taking No suit filter here, against, right? Honest no talk, fil- baby. I'm, I love I'm it. honest, yeah. Yep. Yeah, it got me in trouble a lot of the time, too, believe me. So It's funny how that works. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we, we need to have those royalty incomes, again, for the farmers and ranchers and other people that have invested in those properties through the years so that they have an asset like that. So it, it's multifaceted, mm-hmm. goes across the board in so many different ways. It, it's very complex, and it, beca- it can become very confusing and boring for the average person. And I think that's by design in a, lo- in a lot of cases. I really do. Um, I just I wanted to wrap up here, and, and I appreciate everybody coming out and filling in at the last moment. As uh, C- County Commissioner Mike Freeman and Kevin Ross were unable to make it because they're still in their land meetings as we speak. There's some... More kerfuffle and brouhaha happening here in the state of Colorado. Uh, Dennis Pungitori, thank you for coming down to be a part of this with Meridian Energy Group to talk about uh, the tweaking of business plans, staying nimble, staying quick. Because really right now, the businesses that can be nimble and quick are the ones that are going to survive through this. And when I look at the oil and gas industry, and, and this is what I want each one of you to comment on is, as we kind of wrap up here, and if any of the audience has questions, you can certainly uh, chime in as well, too, or comments. But we've talked about this on The Crude Life for, make sure I'm recording here. Okay, I am. Um, we've talked, I've been turning my mic on and off, so, uh, about how right now every single industry is in a state of uncertainty. Every restaurant has no idea if they're going to open up again. You go into the auto dealer, he has no idea because, sure, his employees are, might be getting paychecks, but he's not selling cars. You know, the Shields opened up, whatever. I, I have no idea how Shields is doing locally here. I know they have a new Shields, though. It's just huge and fantastic and, and absolutely wonderful, but I also know that in order to make certain numbers work, you got to have a certain amount of bodies through the door, and they got to spend about a certain amount of dollars. So when I take a look at the, the impact that's happening here, the oil and gas industry has another opportunity, and that opportunity is to be leaders. No other industry has faced more uncertainty more often than the oil and gas industry. I've been in this for 10 years now. I've gone through two or three downturns. I don't even know. I've gone through three maybe, I guess. I don't know. We'll say two for sure, but maybe three. And for some reason, those individuals, they stick with it because there's something about that oil and gas industry. For me, it's that pure capitalism. I love the fact that you can go into a community and the local community can get behind your product, your service, your idea, and they can do business with you, and then you give back to them. You give back to them. You don't go and wait for a stimulus check or anything like that. The, the people who have understood that these are the people who have made me who I am give back. That's the way that pure capitalism works. Now, politics gets in the way and everything else like that, and we don't live in a perfect world, and I get that. 
But in oil and gas, that is the one thing that drew me to that industry was its drive for the purity of opportunity. And right now, there's not a lot of opportunity in the marketplace, okay? I mean, you turn around and I, don't, I mean, you can, probably can't even get hired at Walmart because there's a waiting line because that's the only people hiring, Walmart and Amazon. So leaders in the economy, leaders in the social rebuilding as well, okay, because there's a real social need to rebuild this crash course to get off fossil fuels too. So um, we'll start with Bill, Dennis, Yoshakin, and then Tanya Van Beber. Beber, thank you, as we're learning here on the fly. Leaders in the marketplace, leaders in the economy, what you know about the oil and gas industry and just the sheer uncertainty that they go through. I mean, you're talking about hundreds of employees, millions of dollars up and down. I mean, my first time I went through it, I almost had a heart attack because I was, I mean, I, I was in publishing. I got hit by the internet hard, okay? I, here's what a paradigm shift is, folks. The oil and gas industry is going through a paradigm shift. Harold Hamm, John uh, Gibson from One Oak and James Volker from Whiting all said that the oil and gas industry is going through a paradigm shift. Those CEOs and chairmen do not use words like that because they can get sued, they can get fired, they're going to be held accountable. They don't, they don't say sensational language like that. The newspaper industry went through a paradigm shift. When you have a monopoly for a hundred years in a town like a newspaper does you go to any town USA and primarily there was one newspaper in the town and they had a monopoly for almost a hundred years and most of them went bankrupt in 10 years after the internet came out that is a real paradigm shift okay so when the CEOs from the oil and gas world are talking about the paradigm shift I'm listening I lost my business in 2009 I got over 30 bankruptcy notices from builders, developers, and remodelers, and because I had a home and builder magazine, I ain't getting that 200K back. That's all gone. Those companies are no longer around. So when I hear that in the oil and gas industry, I get a little bit concerned about my brothers and sisters out there working and families, because I have never seen an industry so family-oriented than the oil and gas industry. Yeah, the trucker works for Whiting, but he's an independent contractor, so he can be for his family all the time. Yeah, this person, he might work for this company full time, but he's an independent contractor so they can control their time because their family comes first. I've seen that over and over again in the oil and gas industry. That's my attraction to it. So that's how I believe that the oil and gas can be leaders right now is to synergize those family ethics along with bringing out new revenues into the marketplace of opportunity. So that's my, I guess, my final thoughts on how I believe the oil and gas industry can be a leader right now in society because most of them have gone through it before over and over and over again. If I've gone through it twice and I'm a newbie, I'm, I'm half gen, I'm not even first generation, I'm half generation, okay? Like I said, I grew up in ag, so um, Mr. Jerky, I'll throw it over to you now and shut up, so go ahead. Okay, a few things you can do. We uh, happen to have at our location here this evening a couple of petitions you can sign. Uh, Tanya kind of mentioned one inadvertently earlier. So let's say a, a, a state or a city wants to uh, deny natural gas as a choice for you in the future. We have a petition here that if we get the signatures and if it passes in Colorado, it would not allow that to happen. It would prohibit government 
from actually being able to go ahead and uh, make it illegal to use natural gas. Pretty neat stuff. The other one is even better, maybe. In the initiative process in Colorado, it's pretty easy to get on. Well, now we, if this passes, if this new other one passes, we would cause anybody that comes forth with such a position to have to do an environmental impact statement. So what that means is if you come in with a 112 saying that you're going to go ahead and cause a 2,500-foot setback, you have to go ahead and actually show the math on the billions and billions and billions of dollars. It would cost royalty owners, workers, uh, governments, you name it. And they, have to, and they would have scrutiny from legislative council, who is a fair trader in my opinion. And that would be, those are steps in the right direction. Can I jump in for a second? Are you talking about essentially an illustration of the supply chain impact? Yeah. Good for yeah. you. Good well, I didn't think of it. This is coming from the industry. I call it the empire strikes back. See, we called it the reverse ripple. <laughs> so what okay. we called is when the downturn happened, we called it the reverse ripple because everybody talked about, you know, the, how oil and gas stimulates all this stuff. Well, when the rigs start going down, there's a reverse that happens. So, okay, all right. Uh, were you finished then? I saw you kind of pause. I can so. always say more, but I'm finished. <laughs> uh, Mr. Dennis Pungitori, talk yeah. to me about how you guys can uh, be leaders, because you already are, but uh, share some of that good knowledge. Well, I mean, one of the one of the things that we, we believe, believe we have going for us is a, a robust business model that the downturns, uh, crude may drop, uh, but so and the refined products price drops. But the the companies that are going to be positioned to to survive that are the ones that have the lowest conversion cost to get from the crude to the refined product, and that's not a 100-year-old refinery. That's not a you know a behemoth sitting somewhere. It's a smaller, nimble, nimble modern design refinery. Um, I'm not a native. I, I take it most people here are natives of Colorado. I chose to come to Colorado. Um, I'm not sure I'd like to take a trip to Uray in the wintertime in an electric car. I'm, I'm quite certain that that might put myself and my family at risk. There's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with EVs. They're a, they're a wonderful technology, but it makes more sense in San Francisco, New York, uh, than the the plains of Colorado or the mountains of Colorado. So let's, let's give it a year with zero oil and gas and see, see what the population thinks of that. I'm, I'm guessing they'll vote the other way. So that's it for me. Thank you very much. And Tanya, curious, on, I don't know what your relation is to oil and gas, if you're involved with it or if you've got minerals or anything like that, but you've been speaking about it. So uh, what would you like to see in leadership, and do you understand what I'm talking about when, they, when I say that I truly do believe they have an unbelievable opportunity to be leaders in the marketplace because everybody's going through uncertainty right now, and they have never experienced anything like it. And oil and gas is like, we've been through this already. Well, it's interesting that you brought up publishing because I had a, a long career in publishing with the newspaper, was the newspapers and education coordinator for the local newspaper here in, in Greeley, Colorado. And um, coming from agribusiness. How long were you there? We did a magazine from house to home back in the day. It was like back in the early 2000s. And that was one of my first downturns. 
And uh, luckily, I got out of that without totally. Anyway, so we did a magazine here in Greeley called From House to Home. But well, anyway, nice. And my department had actually moved to Minot, North Dakota when she, oh, when she small moved. World. So we, yeah, you might know. Uh, might know her. But uh, no, you're right. I think um, you look at all of these industries, and, and oil and gas has, has had its ups and downs. Publishing, newspapers have had their massive ups and downs. Agribusiness has had their ups and downs. And if all of these industries are incredibly. And I mean, deeply committed to being really magically ingenuity, creating and capturing magically, um, if you will, um, important ingenuity and, and the discovery of what's possible. Um, I, I know there's folks have literally, literally, you know, we've had these conversations about energy and they've said, do you know how it really works? And, and, and the average person doesn't, it is magic. And uh, this is an opportunity for them as an industry to jump, like all industries have to, with that paradigm shift, light years into the future to figure out what comes next. Necessity is the mother of, of invention. And uh, this is that moment. This is that time when if out of necessity, they have to figure out what comes next. Um, and I think that's one thing to think about. And I think the other thing to think about is constituents, people, citizens need to get involved. Look at facts over feelings be educated about what it does for us, what it provides in our world. All that magic aside that, it, that is energy, how does it affect us? And you nailed it. When you get up and you put your toothbrush in your mouth, you've just dealt with soap. When you use that in the morning, it's made from those fossil fuels, from those petroleum byproducts. And so I would urge people, get involved and get educated because at that point, um, then the demand too is a part of what pushes an industry to also do something different. Um, so, and I would say from a legislative point of view, and I'm sure Bill would totally agree with this, stop letting government pick winners and losers. As a constituent, as a voter, know what is going down. Know what are the laws. I mean, these are laws. Once they're in effect, it's hard, if not impossible to dial that back know what is going to come down the pike should that be passed and know your options if like 181 something comes up and is a road bump that seems herculean because it is us that decides what comes next with that industry and i would say synergy is also that last piece how can we as voters um, and how can other industries work in synergy with that industry that is struggling to take things to the next level so that slump so that, that we're not looking at that roller coaster in the market all the time for that particular business. Thank you very much. And I'm just going to kind of conclude with this, that if, if you were looking for a way to connect with some people out there, because I believe there's a big disconnect right now with the oil and gas industry and the average person. And I believe the farmers went through this back in the 70s and in the 80s. When the supermarkets started becoming a lot more of a chain, the average person believed that their hamburger came from the supermarket. It no longer came from the farm. I believe the average person believes that energy comes from the light switch, and that's it. So to me, that's your challenge. That is your challenge, is to get somebody to understand, and it's a very difficult thing to do, that it doesn't come from the light switch. There's a lot that goes into it. And I would actually say, talk to some farmers. Find out how, how they put up with it and how they dealt with it because they have experienced 
this disconnect with the average person because energy is very passionate, diet is very passionate, money is very passionate because it affects all of us. It affects all of us. There's so many little special interests that people can get very passionate about, but when you start talking about money and energy and food, oh my, everybody's got an opinion because it's part of our daily lives. So just thought, give you a little bubble gum for the mind there about the farmer. That's why we do call it a little bit of ag 2.0 because we're starting to see the subsidies happen as more of a managed marketplace, but also just the perception of how there's just this disconnect that's happening on a larger scale. So. Thank you very much for coming out. I appreciate that, folks. And um, thank you. So we're going to end it right now. That's it.